I'm Jack Thompson, and this is my quest for truth. I don't know where this journey will take us, but I know one thing for sure. Truth seldom lives within the orthodoxy. Let's look behind the curtain, shall we? We very well may not find the truth there either, or perhaps instead we will find clues. Clues that may just send us down the road less traveled by. My guess is that will make all the difference. What is up, everybody? Welcome to episode one of the Cognitive Dissonance Podcast. I'm Jack Thompson, and I'm so excited to bring this episode to you today. Uh, Hopefully you've had a chance to listen to the pilot episode that uh, I launched uh, last week. Um, I had a few snags getting the podcast accepted on all the platforms. I am hoping that we don't experience any censorship. It does seem that podcasts in general have been, I hate to use the word immune, but um, able to avert some of the censorship that many of the uh, social media platforms and and YouTube are experiencing. So uh, I am sure that a lot of the content that I'll be sharing and a lot of the experts for sure that I'll have on the show uh, have been experiencing censorship. So uh, this content is probably not conducive to building a career on YouTube or uh, through traditional social media platforms. But hey, I might end up with four listeners and uh, they won't uh, give a shit. So maybe I can fly under the radar. Hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully uh, the entire world hears this podcast and uh, we change the world and the pandemic and uh, make these politicians and healthcare professionals wake up. That would be nice, Uh, but I won't hold my breath. That said, uh, my first guest is a lifelong medical professional. He's a doctor and a very non-traditional doctor, although I would argue just next level intelligent. And he is such an interesting man. He's a bit of an enigma in that he's a simple man. Um, He doesn't try to wow you with big words and medical lingo. Uh, He has seemingly no ego. He's a man who is happy to challenge his own beliefs. He is more than happy to change his opinion on things. And he has. He has over the years. And he will tell you, and I've heard him say this several times in in interviews, that usually when he's wrong and changes his mind, it's because he believed the prevailing narrative or the orthodoxy and was experiencing, I guess, a little cognitive dissonance. Um, You know, when you're trained in any profession, but certainly the medical profession, there are a lot of influences at play, and I think it's been a slow evolution over time, but certainly... Big Pharma and government have their hands all over the medical profession uh, from medical school throughout their careers. So uh, I think most doctors, nurses, medical professionals think a certain way, and I don't necessarily blame them. I do think that most medical professionals have their patients' best interest at heart. Uh, My mother was a nurse, a very excellent nurse. And as a tangent, I think she was an excellent nurse because she truly loves people and truly went with her gut and never tried to insert her opinions, her beliefs. Um, I think her 
great gift was just showing love to people when they're suffering. She was in ICU for many years uh, and really dealt with a lot of patients in rough shape. And, you know, one thing I've learned from my mother and and her wisdom, she would laugh if she heard me call her wise, (laughs) but she is, she is. Um, I think her gift was showing love and true, genuine compassion to people when they were suffering and to their family members. Um, I've had a had a really awful medical crisis. Uh, it's been about four years ago now, and I'll get into that on some other episode. But I spent, unfortunately, a lot of time in the hospital, and I saw both kinds of nurses. And I can tell you firsthand, when you are suffering, you're in pain, and when you're terrified, God, all you want is someone to take care of you and to be nice to you. And, you know, sometimes your mouth is so dry, it's driving you insane and all you want is a piece of ice to suck on uh, or you need someone to help you roll over in the bed. You know, it's, uh, you, you do kind of quickly revert back to when you were a kid. You just want your mom or your dad to, to take care of you when you're sick, when you're feeling bad. And uh, gosh, through, through my medical crisis a few years ago, uh, that's all I wanted. I, I wanted somebody to just handle everything for me. Uh, so anyway, I think medical professionals that, especially nurses, I think maybe I'm biased, but, uh, man, the nurses are the, the people who are the troopers, you know, they're on the ground floor and for patients in the hospital, you know, nurses are the ones that are taking care of their every need, you know, bringing them food and their medication and taking them to the bathroom and wiping their butt and giving them enemas and all kinds of fun stuff. So nurses are true heroes. Um, So for a lot of the problems that we have today um, related to COVID and and a lot of other issues, um, generally I I don't blame nurses. um, And I generally don't blame doctors, although these are the people that should question things. They should be scientists at heart. They shouldn't just blindly accept what they were taught in school. Um, I do think true wisdom and a true understanding of any field comes from acknowledging and knowing and admitting that you don't know everything, that, in fact, you know very little. I mean, the smartest person in your life that you can think of, that person probably knows point zero 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 one percent of their particular field. And they're probably wrong about, you know, 99.99% of what they think they believe. And, you know, when we hear people talk about the science these days, and it it gets thrown around on both sides or all sides of the, the COVID issue and the vaccine issue. Everybody throws around the science. But I guess, I guess my wisdom that I learned from my mom is I realize what a dumbass I am. You know, I, I realize that I know very little. Um Compared to some people uh, in my life, I, I I definitely study some of these things way, way more than most people. So I think I do have maybe a better understanding um, in terms of the COVID situation and the mechanisms at play and the, the powers that be and how they manipulate the situation. Uh, I, I do think, unfortunately, most people just don't dive in and study it. And to me, a lot of this 
situation and, and my opinions just become so obvious. It, it's like, I, I cannot understand how if everyone would dive in, do their homework, read up on this virus and read up on the vaccines. And obviously I don't have to tell you guys this. I'm not getting my information from CNN and Fox news and, and the mainstream outlets. Um, we all know that there is a common narrative that is just being parroted over and over again. And it, it's actually hilarious. You know, I've seen some clips on uh, some of the people I follow on Telegram where, where they'll take snippets from all the mainstream media and they're literally all saying the same phrases right down to the the, the word. Um, they all say the same thing. It, it's as if, you know, Fauci or whoever sent out a press release to all his media lackeys and said, this is the uh, terminology we're going to use. Here's the phrase I want you to use. Uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. You know, you, you could almost flip through any channel on your cable box and hear somebody saying that phrase. Uh, it's it's really as if somebody decreed that we must say pandemic of the unvaccinated. So, you know, these people are not thinking for, their sel- for themselves. Um, they are obviously influenced by their bosses who are influenced by advertisers, i.e. big pharma, uh, governments at play for sure. And I, I don't look at it as a conspiracy. I really don't. And, you know, when I hear that sort of insult thrown around, you're a conspiracy theorist or others are insulted with that term, I, I just, I, I don't like it. I, I think to me in this situation anyway, it's it's not a conspiracy necessarily. And it's certainly not a theory. You literally just have to read what's going on and follow the money. And and it's just what's going on. And and I don't necessarily, although there's some indications that I could be wrong here, but I don't necessarily think that, you know, all the powerful people in the world got together and plotted to, uh, you know, take down mankind with this virus. Uh, and it's some vast conspiracy in the way we normally think of conspiracy theories. Uh, I just kind of think it's the way the paradigm has evolved and it was the perfect storm, the perfect circumstance. And, you know, Fauci, for example, um, he's a lifelong guy at the CDC and the NIH and he, uh, not CDC, just NIH, I guess, and NIAID. Uh, But he has at least attempted the the same playbook several times with the swine flu and and with HIV AIDS and we will definitely get into uh, the 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 HIV AIDS epidemic uh, at some later date. I have done a lot of research and a lot of homework on uh, that situation. I remember it so well uh, when I was a kid, and I'll never forget hearing Magic Johnson you know, get on TV at a press conference and announce that he had contracted AIDS, AIDS and it was such a disaster, such a devastating thing. And there was so much fear spreading across the country. And you know, a lot of this, I think, was actually coming from Fauci. Um, I saw an interview recently that he gave back then uh, talking about how it is possible to contract the virus, the HIV virus from toilet seats and things like that. And I'll, I'll give you a spoiler alert. I now, um, it took me a while to come to this point, but I now do not think that HIV causes AIDS, and I don't think they ever actually isolated uh, that virus in the way that they should have. And uh, there's some 
really intelligent virologists and, and scientists, way, way smarter than me, that uh, agree. Um, so we'll get into that. And that kind of leads me into uh, our guest today. Sorry for the long rant here. But Tom Cowan is, uh, again, just an amazing man. I just find him to be so humble and kind and so wise. And my hope is if you've never heard him speak before, uh, this interview will pique your interest and you'll go read some of his books and listen to his podcast and uh, listen to a lot of his lectures and and interviews that he's given on other shows uh, because he is just a wealth of knowledge. And, you know, what I'm most impressed with and by the way, that this is part of what sort of led me down this whole holistic uh, biohacking alternative health realm is that I realized that, and, and this is this is true. This is not me being biased. I realized that holistic alternative practitioners are the people that are actually healing patients. They are actually performing miracles by our normal definition. Literally, in a lot of cases, reversing cancer, uh, you name it. Uh, these these people are absolutely incredible. But the reason it resonated for me is that they come at it from a very intuitive perspective. The way they go about healing people is not through some elaborate experimentation in some university or lab in China or whatever. Uh, they're not trying to come up with new chemicals, new medications to feed people. That's not what they're about. They're about what actually caused this in the first place. And our paradigm today, you know, if you, if you could sum up briefly what the major problem is, the major problem is that medicine today tries to treat symptoms. They do not try to treat the root cause. Holistic an alternative practitioners, doctors do the opposite in general. And I'm, and I'm making a big generalization here, but that's a pretty good, accurate rule of thumb, I think, to, uh, to, to, to go by here. Uh, so Dr. Cowan, when you hear some of the accounts of uh, patients that he's healed over the years and how he's basically never given a vaccine to a child. Um, and he's treated thousands and thousands of children over the years. He's retired now, by the way. Um, but I would argue he's making more of an impact on the world as a retired doctor than he probably ever did as a practicing physician. But when you hear some of the stories of how he would uh, heal patients and, and treat things like cancer through totally non-traditional methods, you know, chemotherapy, <laughs> things like that, are just completely counter his uh, philosophy, his approach. And, um, you know, I think as a kid and as a, a college student and a young professional out in the real world, if I would have heard about Dr. Cowan and his methods or anyone like him, I would have rejected it and thought it was just quackery. And I, I would have definitely rejected it right, right out of the gate. So I, I think, I don't know, I'm older and wiser. I don't know. But I think... Most people, when you hear this kind of approach to science, to medicine, your instinct is to just reject it because it's not what you were told when you were a kid. It's not what your teachers told you, what your bosses tell you, etc. Uh, the media. And that's what the show is all about. What are those topics that when you hear them, you just reject them automatically because they're so counter 
what you were taught, what you quote unquote believe. So when I first heard Dr. Cowan, he was actually a guest on my all time favorite podcast is uh, called the lifestylist. If uh, you're not familiar, um, you got to check it out. Luke's story. He is just uh, an amazing soul and uh, I'm a massive fan, but I first heard Dr. Cowan on Luke story show and he was talking about the virus and you know, he, he sounded like a reasonable man and he made a lot of sense, but he was basically saying, I don't know that he came out and said it, but he was basically saying that viruses don't actually exist. There's no such thing as an invisible germ that jumps from person to person and tries to make you sick. That sounds crazy. You know, for those of you that have never heard that theory, uh, you're probably going to just hit stop and uh, delete, unsubscribe, and that's cool. But um, I kind of felt the same way, although I really trust Luke's story. Uh, and I knew he wouldn't have a nut job on his show. And and Dr. Cowan himself sounded really credible. And what he said made a lot of sense. So, you know, it, it, it stuck in my head um, for maybe a week. And, you know, I kept, kept coming back to it. You know, we're, we're all going about our busy lives. So I didn't sit there and dwell on it. But uh, at some point, uh, I searched his name and, and found some other interviews he'd given. And <laughs> before you knew it, I got kind of addicted, you know, kind of hooked on listening to Dr. Cowan. And, uh, God, who knows, I would, I would shudder to think of how many hours now I've devoted to listening to Dr. Cowan or or reading his books, Uh, but it's a lot. And it definitely took some time, um, you know, months and months of kind of wrestling internally with, uh, you know, what I believe in terms of viruses. And for a while I was probably stuck on 90, 95%, you know, I'm pretty darn sure this is right, but uh, there's that little piece of me hanging on to the old paradigm that, uh, you know, there are contagious uh, germs, viruses, but I'll tell you officially, I'm at 100%. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that there is no such thing as a virus in the way that uh, we traditionally think of them. So with that said, I will shut up now and let you listen to this interview with Dr. Tom Cowan. Enjoy. Well, I'll get down to it. I really sincerely appreciate you coming on. I've been following your work very closely, and I'm sure a lot of people have kind of caught on to your work during the the pandemic. And uh, that's how you first caught my attention. And I've since gone down the rabbit hole uh, with with your work. And uh, I'm just about to uh, wrap up the book uh, on uh, on vaccines. I've read your book on the heart, which argues the heart is not a pump. And I've read your uh, book on cancer. And, you know, for me personally, it was it was good sort of fortuitous timing to find you because I think at any other point in my life, I would have probably rejected most of what you say and, and written it off as quackery or something. And uh, through just a, I guess, fortuitous series of events, I've stumbled onto the work of, of Gerald Pollack and um, you know, a lot of other uh, folks that I think we sort of have in common and that have likely influenced your work. And uh, I think uh, the stars aligned and I found your work uh, when I was supposed to, because it really has resonated with me. And, you know, the, the one thing I'll say is that there's almost no one that I know in my life that agrees with me. And I'm sure you're uh, used to that phenomenon. And uh, it, it's been a little frustrating. And I've, I've kind of learned to just keep my mouth shut and, and pick my moments. Uh, you know, but if you, if you say to someone that, you know, there, there really may not be such a thing as a contagious virus or the heart is not a pump. You know, people don't want to hear that stuff and uh, they're, they're not even open to having a, a discussion about it. So I guess my first question for you is how do you deal with that? Just the constant frustration of knowing that 
you know, you're, you're looking at the world a completely different way than 99% of the people. I, I don't really worry about it. It's been like that my whole life, more or less. And I just think what I think for whatever reason I think. Uh, and, you know, it changes over time. And I, I have often said I get a lot of things wrong. Uh, everything, the other part of that is pretty much everything I've ever gotten wrong, or maybe not everything, but close, is because I believe the dominant narrative too much. Uh, and a lot of times I would know it at the time, like, I don't think that's right, but I didn't want to take it on at the time. So I just kind of left it. And you would think I would, I would be on the lookout and I'm a little bit more on the lookout now, but I, I just, for me, I don't worry about it. I say what I say and let the chips fall where it may. And if I'm wrong, I try to admit it and move on. And that's all you can do. Yeah, you know, it just it's more difficult these days when so much is going on um, with government lockdowns and masks and, and vaccines that, you know, for me, it's it's very frustrating to uh, believe what I now believe, thanks to you, and know that there's very little hope, at least in the immediate future of really making an impact on the powers that be. Um, does that deter you, dissuade you, frustrate you at any point? I mean, it may be a little different for me because I have a lot of uh, pretty well-known people to a certain extent e either asking my opinion or calling me an idiot <laughs> or both. Probably not right. both, same <laughs> people. But, uh, and so I, I just can't worry about things like that. I mean, you know, people are going to believe what they want to believe. Uh, most of them are, in my opinion, under kind of a spell. The, the other thing I think is, this may be uh, a little bit relevant to this conversation, this, it, this point. You see, I, in the, the very first book I wrote called The Fourfold Path to Healing, one of the co-authors was a good friend of mine named Jamin McMillan. And he came to a very interesting revelation, which is, so there's two ways of looking at uh, at why you think or feel the way you do. There's a lot of different ways, but, but what he was talking about is if you could, if you come upon a person and, or let me, let me do it like this. So I'm gonna show you two people and you tell me which person is happy and which person is depressed, okay? Okay. So here's person number one. Here's person number two. All right, okay. number one's happy, number two is depressed. Right, now here's an interesting thing. You don't know anything about that person. In fact, it's the same person. You, you don't even, you've never even heard what that person thinks about life, right? And so how do you know that number one is happy and the two is depressed? And not only that, my guess is, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are 100% sure you got it right, right? Pretty much, yeah. There's no doubt in your mind. Now, Jamin said to himself, if that's the case, and if you're like this, you can't feel or think any differently than, than what's emerging out of your body. So there's nothing to tell that person. There's no convincing him or trying to make them feel better. All I'm going to do is rearrange your body somehow so you're like this. And then you will feel differently because the reality is different. Now, 
the, the, the way that applies in this context is I've ended up deciding that when all is said and done, the only thing that we can prove, uh, you know, exists in a cell or a tissue, let's say a tissue, is a very thin membrane, organized water, a bunch of stuff like lipids and, and minerals and amino acids dissolved in the water, mitochondria and nucleus. The rest of the things which we're told are in the cell or in the tissue actually don't exist. They're artifacts of the way we process and kill tissue. And the way it works is this organized water is acts like a sort of radio. And that gets into the a story, a little uh, five-year-old friend of mine, I was driving in the car. And then somehow an interview with, of me came on during we, we were driving. And he said, he looked at me and he says, Tom, how did you get in that radio? <laughs> and I, and it was, I thought it was a great question. Uh, nobody thinks this, the, the sound emerges from the radio, but yet the neurologists and, and medical doctors think your brain thinks thoughts. And I would submit there's no more evidence for that than there is that the sound emerges from inside the radio. The radio is necessary for sound, but what it's doing is acting as a receiver for you know, sound waves out in the world of a certain sort of frequency. And you have to tune the radio in order to process it into sound or music or something. The same with your brain. And in this case, it's not a trans transistor, I guess, with a radio, but it's an organized water crystal. And the reason it's a water crystal is because water has, is a holographic pattern that uh, also has infinite binding sites. And it basically receives energy and then it changes itself depending on what the, you know, what the input is. And so it's organized out of the proteins and, and the minerals that essentially gives the structure of the water. Now, if that's true, which it is, and your brain is 80% water in comparison to like your liver, which is 70%. And the reason is, is because your brain has to, you know, be a, a better receiver of thoughts and maybe even feelings than your liver. Not that your liver doesn't, but um, so what's happening with the people you describe is like the people that Jamin is, their water is, is screwed up, incoherent. And so if you say something like what you just said, that there actually is no evidence of any pathogenic virus ever in history, there's, it doesn't land because their radio is out of tune. Now, you can get mad at them and say, you're an idiot and, you know, what's the matter with you? And it's like trying to shout at your radio, uh, you know, that it can't pick up a signal, which it's not powerful enough to get. How much of it is the, the, re the receiver part of it and how much is, of it is the energetic transmission of that particular message in this case? There's no such thing as a virus. Um, but I hear every day that that virus is going to kill us and the variants are going to kill us. And it doesn't do anything to me because, because my water says that's just not true. And so it doesn't, it doesn't confuse me or affect me or anything. And what I've noticed in my life is the more I work on, on myself, partially with the eye towards clarifying and making my water more coherent. And I'll, I'll even, you know, thank my water and, 
pray to my water and drink structured water and expose myself to trees and plants in the sun. And, you know, it's, it's like a life based on living water as opposed to uh, a computer-based life, which is a, a system based on quartz, which never changes. It's just fixed. So I don't want to be a, a quartz-based organism. I want to be a water-based as you do that, you become resilient or resistant to basically nonsense. Makes perfect sense. Um, it reminds me of an interview you did that I listened to with a lady who did some artwork with water based on sort of the memory uh, yeah. inherent yeah. in water. Um, so do you think memories in general that we have are stored in the water somehow that, that's in our brain? Is that what a memory is? 100%. Not just in our brain, but in our body. All the memories are, because it's, it's actually pretty well worked out how it happens. Imagine, so it's like making jello. You, you put water and protein, and then nothing happens. And then you heat the, the solution, and that unfolds the proteins. That allows the water to use the protein as, like uh, the oysters use the, the dock as a nidus for forming a colony of oysters, the, the, the water uses the protein and some minerals and maybe some other things as the nidus for forming this coherent state of water. Now, interestingly, the role of ATP is not energy like everybody thinks. It binds with the, with the uh, protein and, and makes it unfold because a folded protein can't interact with water. Does it so, heat it up? Is that what happens? The no, ATP? It, doesn't, it doesn't need to heat it up. It's, a, it's an electromagnetic or chemical bond that then unfolds the protein. You can't heat it up because we don't have Bunsen burners in our, in our tissues. So the, nature had to devise a non-heat method of unfolding protein. With jello, you can heat it, right? It's easier. Um, so, you know, once that happens, you have a a system which is open to experience. And like I said, whenever an experience, like a memory comes in or a thought, it, it, it essentially uh, binds to one of the sites on the water and subtly changes the, the crystal structure. And that becomes a memory. And it's the same thing, like this is, this is basically the essence of health and disease. Like if this happens in your joint, you know, normally you have these two uh, negatively charged, because all the gels are negatively charged, sacs called bursa mm -hmm. lining your joint. And, and because the negative charges repel, there's a free movement. So there's gels with negative charge, so you have a free moving joint. And then something happens, like you don't have enough collagen proteins or you get an injury or something uh, impacts, some toxin gets into your joint, and then it dissolves the water. And you see that now as an effusion, a swelling in your knee. And then the knee can't keep, the charge can't keep the, the two bones separate. So they start to wear each other away. Next thing you know, you have what's called osteoarthritis. And the doctors, unfortunately, are confused and they think you have a disease when what you really have is a erosion of your, the crystalline nature of your water. So if you think like that, it's not an abstract way of, being, it tells you that you need to recrystallize, make the water in your joints more coherent, and then you won't have pain and arthritis anymore. 
And so it's actually very practical. And, and what does coherence mean in this context exactly? So you can imagine um, a crystal, like quartz crystal, uh, but a little bit more flexible. So we're talking about the bond angles of water. Now, in bulk water, or liquid water, there, there are some bond angles, but it's mainly individual particles of, of molecules, H2O or D2O, floating around in the water. As it forms into a coherent state, they, they organize themselves around certain bonds because of the dipole nature of water. And only water does this. This is why water is the vehicle of life. Without water, there's no life. Only water can create this essentially living, flexible crystal, which is based on the bond angles of the, of the molecules in the water and the ability of water to form an electrical dipole. And this has all been worked out and you know you can do the, you can measure the angles and you can tell the quality of the water by the angles of the hydrogen and oxygen bonds. And, and there's nothing you know, sort of loosey-goosey about this. It's very clear, just like you can measure the angles in a quartz crystal. Could you extract the, the water out of a joint or any part of the body and analyze it? And, or at least conceivably, could you do this and know whether or not the water is coherent and, and healthy? So there you get into the problem that Goethe talked about, which is, um, he said, uh, this is a paraphrase, I'd say not a quote. The problem with Western science is we decided we wanted to understand frogs, right? And we wanted to help frogs. We want to know what frogs are made of. We want to know what the ecosystem of the frogs were and everything to do with what makes up a frog, right? So what's the first thing we do? We kill the frog. Obviously. And I can tell you that you know, if the goal was to help the frog, it did not help that frog, because <laughs> um, now it's dead. Now, over the centuries, we, in, in order to do this, we probably killed millions of frogs, right? Imagine how many rats and hamsters and oh. guinea pigs we've slaughtered. And the problem is, he said, once you kill the frog, there's nothing to learn. Because whatever there, whatever, the, the organizing principle of the frog is gone, frog's dead. Now, you could probably see something to do with the structure or whatever, but even that is changed once you kill the frog. So the answer to your question is, if you, as soon as you stick a needle in and suck out the fluid, by the time you get to analyze it, the structure of the water will be different than when it was when it was in you. So I would, I would say that's one of the fundamental problems of, of modern Western science is we make the assumption that, uh, that doing laboratory techniques doesn't change whatever we're looking at from what it was in real life. So let me give you another example of this. So I'll ask you a question. Let's say we wanna know what your hand is made of and what your hand does, right? That's our goal. Okay. Here's how we're going to do it. First, we're going to cut your hand off your body, and then we're going to put it in an enzyme bath to dissolve all this soft tissue, and then we're going to freeze it at a minus 150 degrees centigrade, and then we're going to grind it up in a blender, and then we're going to soak it in heavy metal dyes, and then we're going to put it on a slide and shoot an electron beam at it to evaporate all the water from the tissue. What do you think the chances that we would 
have a thorough, accurate understanding of your hand? Pretty much zero. So that technique, which is what how they make electron microscope pictures, is the only way any human being has seen a virus. Now, what do you think the chances are that that thing you see under an electron microscope is the same in form and function to what it is inside a living being? Very little. I would say zero. <laughs> it's, an, it's mostly an artifact. What you're seeing is stained debris. Now, that's a problem. So what the, the, the problem is we have a science that assumes those things are accurate. So getting back to your question, you suck somebody's fluid out of their knee, you assume that you haven't changed anything. But what you really need to do is find some sort of device that would actually measure the bond angles while it's in your knee. And even then you have to be careful because you might shoot it with an electron beam or an X-ray, which by itself changes the water because now you're adding a whole nother input into the water. Uh, the, this this is, sounds maybe irrelevant or abstract, but it's actually fundamental to, to you know, medicine because if you can't get an accurate picture of the state of the person, um, because everything you do, even telling somebody I'm gonna take your blood produces all kinds of hormonal effects which change your blood sugar. So immediately your blood sugar reading is no longer accurate because it was done under duress, which, and we know for a fact that, you know, adrenaline changes your blood sugar. So we have a real problem with this. We need a whole different, you know, diagnostic measuring approach because the current way, the bottom line is medicine and Western science has made the assumption that we're only made of chemicals which do not change uh, when we interact with them. And that is laughably naive and inaccurate. In fact, you know, modern physicists say that all, all matter is either a particle and a wave, and the, the thing that determines which one it is is whether you look at it or not. So how, you know, so right. measuring something changes. Given that, it's a, a tough thing to master. Yeah. I remember, uh, you know, along these lines, at some point you mentioned uh, a doctor and some videos um, online that you could find who kind of studied this phenomenon. And I want to say uh, he was studying cells under the microscope and maybe how they were sliced and how that affected um, the appearance. Am, am I on the right path with that? Yeah, Harold Hillman. Harold Hillman. I tell you, anybody, I, I'm to the point where if a doctor, scientist, or biologist uh, writes me a question about how biology or medicine or whatever science works, and they haven't read Hillman, I mostly say now, read Hillman for a month and then get back to me. Because you are not in a position to understand biology or science unless you read Hillman. Now, I didn't read Hillman until maybe four to six months ago. And it was under the suggestion of Stefan Lenka, who said, Tom, you don't understand what you need to understand until you read Hillman. And so I spent a month and probably read 2,000 pages, some of it again and again, wow. until I could see what this guy was talking about. 
Um, and it, it, it absolutely revolutionizes how you think. It, I can give you an example. Like, I, I don't know if you know much biology or, or cell biology. Basics. Basics. So you ask uh, any doctor, any cell biologist, what's in a cell? One of the things they say is a ribosome. You've heard of ribosome? I have. So a ribosome is important because it's the place where protein is made. And we are made of protein. And, so, and it's important for the current, you know, mRNA injections because the, the theory is mRNA is translated into protein in the ribosomes. And so the, the existence and function of the ribosomes is a, was a huge advance in modern cell biology and cell theory and how we understand genetics and the conversion of a gene which is DNA into RNA into protein, right? Yep. So this is huge. Now, here's, here's what I didn't know. Every single, so Hillman traces back and gives exact references to how ribosomes were discovered and what is known about them in the last, say, 80, 100 years. Now, here's what I didn't know. Every single, the only way that any ribosome has been seen is an electron microscope. In other words, all those steps that I just said. That's number one. So already one should be suspicious. Number two, every single picture of an electron microscope ribosome is a perfect circle, right? Like this. Now, that means if it's a two-dimensional circle, it must have been a sphere in real life, right? Otherwise, yep. there's no way that could look like that. Now, so that's the next step. Now, remember that the way that you got this was partly by homogenizing the tissue. In other words, you put it in a blender. Now here's the question. So an orange is pretty much a perfect sphere as well, right? So you put an orange in a, in a blender, grind it up, and then you, you have a thousand pieces of orange. What are the chances that every single piece is a perfect circle? Very little. <laughs> I would say the answer is actually zero. Zero. <laughs> right? So how is it possible that every ribosome is a perfect circle? It's, it's not. It's an artifact. In fact, he goes on to prove that these are basically uh, heavy metal stained gas bubbles that come from the dying of the tissue because you took the tissue out and then you froze it and, you know, beamed it and all the rest of it. And so it liberates gas just because that's what happens. And then you stain them and the membranes around the gas bubbles, they, the heavy metal impregnates on that. And then you see it and he proved that. In which case, you could say without any shadow of a doubt that there are no ribosomes. No such thing as ribosomes. No such thing. They made that up. Ribosomes, unicorns, Sasquatch, space <laughs> aliens. Now there's about 20 other things that are supposedly in a cell or a tissue that you can more or less do the same thing. And, and believe me, I simplified, you know, 50 pages into yeah. that little thing. Uh, and again, for anybody who doubts this, uh, I can tell you Hillman was willing to debate anybody at any time and he never lost. And they hated him because he basically told people the entire cell biology genetic 
research was based on a house of cards. So they didn't like it very much. But guess not. Yeah. But so if that's true, then there is no place where RNA is turned into protein. Because again, all there is in a tissue is according to Hillman was it's like blocks of jello. There's not even really a membrane in between. There's like you wouldn't say if you had two blocks of jello, there's a cell membrane. Right. It's like there's sort of like something there, but you, you know, and it's a little thicker because as you get closer to the edge, the, the layers of water become more packed in. Uh, so it turns out, here, here's another thing in science. So we're told that they're the central dogma of science. DNA makes RNA makes protein. Well, then we found out that RNA can make DNA with something called reverse transcriptase. Like that's supposedly uh, retroviruses or RNA viruses. Right. Um, so that sort of fell by the wayside, but we still believe that every protein is coded for by the DNA, right? That's fundamental. Yep. So then they do the human genome project and they find between 10 and 20,000 genes. You know how many proteins there are? How many? At least 250,000. So if you do the math, you have the question, how do you get 10,000 genes coding for 250,000 proteins? Because there's 240 that are unaccounted for. And they have all kinds of complex theories of the genes are, the base pairs are rearranged. And, and then you say, well, who's doing the rearranging? Well, we don't know. Um, the intelligence of the cell, like whatever that means. Um, so, uh, so here's the here's the reality. There are some proteins that are coded for by genes, but the vast majority of them, like 240 out of 250,000, are actually created de novo, meaning new, in the watery cytoplasm using energy from the outside and um, amino acids that are just found in the dissolved in the cytoplasm in the water creating a protein out of nothing that's the only conclusion you can come to that's actually reality based now i would say most people so-called scientists doctors hearing that would think this guy is crazy uh, but the real crazy is how you can make 10,000 codes make 250,000 end products because the math just doesn't add up. Unbelievable. That is just mind blowing. You know, along those lines in, in your book about cancer, you talk a lot about where cancer originates. Is it, is it in the nucleus where the genes are versus is it in the water? Is it in the cytoplasm? How much of what we believe as a society in this current you know, medical paradigm is related to that. Uh, I know cancer, we, we think that it's a genetic disorder, but I imagine that a large percentage of, of what we diagnose and what we believe is the origin of, of all kinds of various diseases and maladies uh, originate from the genes. Would you say that the lion's share of the time, the, the vast majority of the time, it, it originates in the cytoplasm and in the water versus the genes? There is no genetic diseases uh, because the, the, 
First of all, the whole idea of the DNA is a misconception. And the, 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 the origin of, you go back to the system we're talking about, which is organized water with some other stuff, a nucleus that probably has the DNA in it, at least most of it, and a mitochondria, and that's it. And the way it works is the, this water system is an energy receiver and it collects the energies. And this could be anything from thoughts and feelings to the sun and the moon and the dog and everything else, or it could be electromagnetic fields, man-made, which are essentially toxic electromagnetic inputs. And then it organize, it creates based on its own wisdom and blueprint, a structure to meet its needs. And even it, it unfolds or unmasks or creates the actual genetic sequences. You know, Barbara McClintock did a lot of work on showing that the DNA is not a fixed entity. It's much more malleable than we think. And we're continually recreating our, our entire genome, you know, as we go. And so, so what's, what's happening is people have fixed, irrational, delusional ideas. And essentially that's creating abnormal proteins and incoherent water. And that's what we call being sick. And you can, you can see that with something like Alzheimer's disease, you know, they're, um, they asked Mark Twain why he has such a good memory. And he said, because he never tells a lot. But if you live in a culture where everybody's lying more or less almost all the time, and then you make tangled webs in your water, and then you can't remember your wife's name. That's what we call Alzheimer's. So it's a, it's a physical manifestation. It's like a crystallization of a problem of consciousness which is exactly what all the old medical systems said about life. What role do genes play at all? I mean, what, what is DNA there for? What, what's its purpose? DNA is, a, is an antenna that collects the energy probably mostly from the sun and actually um, creates, because of its folding structure, which is not a double helix, that was a mistake, um, you see, the whole structure of modern biology is, is you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fantasy, basically. So, but this, this organized antenna actually creates this special water called pie water, phi water, out of which life is created. So the function of it is to be an, is to be an energy, essentially, antenna, mm -hmm. probably for sunlight. What about the phenomenon where, uh, you know, I, I look a lot like my dad or, you know, I got red hair. My mom had red hair. Um, do we pass traits down that way? We pass traits, but that doesn't mean they're in the DNA. That, that's an interesting question because it's, it's the same question as um, people are often confused from what they experience, which is real and an explanation which they have no idea. So if I was to say to you, okay, prove to me that your red hair is a function of one of the genes in your DNA. Can you do that? No, it would be totally based on what I've learned, what I've heard and what I... Be, even when you say what you've learned. So you have no idea how you would recreate that argument. 
other than to say, uh, you know, I was taught in school that, you know, traits like that are passed down, you know, from your parents through the, through the genes. Uh, so do you think anybody has identified a gene that gives you red hair? If you would have asked me, you know, a year ago, I would have said yes. I would have said I yes. don't think so. Um, now, it, it could be that there is a code that makes a certain protein. But even that, I would submit, is, is flexible because, you know, you can also see that at a certain point in your life, your hair is redder than at other points, right? Yeah. So how is that if it's just a gene cranking out protein for red hair? Why is it variable over your life? It's a great question. No idea. So, so the, the, my point here is the thing that you experience is my mother had red hair. I have red hair. That's real. The thing you don't experience is that's because of a gene. That's, that's a very abstract. And if you follow the steps, you would be very hard pressed to prove that. Well, the reason I believe you is because this is so reminiscent of the, the virus phenomenon where based on my experience, you know, I think I've been around people that had uh, the flu or some other virus and I got it and everybody in my class got it in school. And so you assume that you were told that, you know, it's contagious and it got passed around. And so that's, that's what you believe. Right. So, but if you deconstruct that, the, the thing that's an observation is Joey got sick and then I got sick in a similar way. I'm not saying that observation is incorrect. Now, if I asked you, did you see the virus that Joey gave to you? I would say no. Do you think anybody has ever documented that there is a specific virus that could be isolated from Joey's tissues, his snot or lungs or skin, and that isolated virus uh, was proven to cause those symptoms in another animal or human being. Again, if you asked me a year ago, I would have said, yes, obviously that's been proven, but now I know otherwise. Right. And it, I, all I can say is having spent like a hundred hours looking for such a study, I can guarantee there is no such study in the medical literature. Therefore, you have no personal experience of the, of the fact that the cause of this phenomenon was a virus, right? That's right. You only know that, that there's something that seems like it may have been communicated from one person to another. Now, I would, I would just, then the next step is I would be cautious of that for two reasons. One, that's called an epidemiological observation. And nobody in science says you prove causation with epidemiology. You only tells you what to study. The second thing is if you think that because a lot of people in the same place get sick with the same symptoms, that proves it's a virus, then you must think that Hiroshima was a virus because a lot of people got sick in the same place and same symptoms. And I don't know anybody who thinks it was a virus. If you think it's, uh, well, if something spreads from one place to another, that proves it's a virus. So you must think that Chernobyl was a virus because it started spreading all over Eastern Europe and people got the same symptoms. Or you must think that uh, when sailors had their teeth fall out and then they went into heart failure and died on ships, they, for hundreds of years, they said, there's something contagious that's being spread from one sailor to the next. And then they would dock and then the next ship would get it and they see it's being spread. Same with Barry Berry. 
Same with Pellegra, millions of people died. And then with, with the ship thing, somebody ate a lemon or a lime and the whole thing went away because it turns out they had scurvy. So that's the problem. Now, then if you say, well, the only thing that can pass between human beings, right, is a virus. So what about girls up to age 20 who go live in a cabin and they all start menstruating at the same time? Was that a virus? Of course not. What about if somebody comes into the room who's happy and just has a, exudes a kind of upbeat and then next thing you know, people are feeling happier and more friendly. And we know that that happens. It even happens with yawns, right? Somebody yawns and then is, are those viruses? It's so funny. I was just reading about this phenomenon because of you, because I, I noticed how yawning is contagious and I decided to look into it a little bit. And uh, I can't, obviously, there's no good explanation out there that anybody can offer other than maybe you, but uh, same phenomenon. Right. So there's, there. in fact, the, the only one that you can disprove is that there's no virus. Otherwise, it's very complicated to know what might have happened. Now, one of the reasons it's hard to talk about this is because in the last 150 years, nobody has looked into this, or practically nobody. Um, so you can't say, well, here's a study that shows that it's, a, it's an electromagnetic field resonance, or it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a this, or it's a sort of emotional connection, or it's a heart, you know, energetic feeling. We, we just don't know because we've, we've narrowed ourselves into the only thing that's real are particles. And then ironically, we look for the particles and can't even find them, which is ironic because that's the whole theory of what this is about. And it turns out you can't even demonstrate the particles. How about this phenomenon of just resonance as it pertains to illness? You know, I've, I've heard you talk about that it is possible that, uh, you know, children that all get the, the chicken pox or whatever it is, measles, um, maybe there's an element of just resonance. Uh, you know, their cells vibrate at a certain frequency, which affect uh, their brother or sister. They get sick. Is there something to that? Are things contagious in that manner? Um, so the, the, the thing is, also, you can't discount um, shared toxins. You know, of course, you, you all go to the same uh, restaurant and you get all sick because there's a toxin in the food. So that's not a contagious. Dirty air filter and some kind of right. mold in the air. Yeah. yeah, something like that. But if you if you dissect something like measles or chicken pox. So here's what here's what we know for sure. One is these are childhood diseases that come and go through the millennia. In other words, in 1200, there was no such thing as measles or chickenpox. And then suddenly it appears, and then suddenly it goes away. And the old homeopaths used to call that genus epidemicus, that the epidemics had a kind of genius. So they're, they're associated with a certain age or period in time. The second thing we know is that a child who goes through chickenpox or measles is better for life. They have fewer chronic diseases, they have better health, they have less cancer, less glioblastoma, less osteoarthritis, et cetera. So therefore, <clears throat> it's more like a maturation process than it is a disease. In fact, the whole, the whole classification or saying that's a disease is actually mistaken because if you get poisoned, if you put in smoke in your lungs 
and then you cough it up. And so you have mucus and fever and all that. The mucus and fever is the therapy for smoking. Unfortunately, doctors don't know that. So they think that's the disease and they make that stop. And then you end up getting sicker for life. It's like when they stop your fever. Right. Or they stop you from eliminating the toxin. And in fact, that's really what disease is, is the resolution phase. So if that's true, in other words, this is a process that children should go through and that if one understands it and they're reasonably well-nourished is completely harmless, then it w it's not so surprising that if one child does it, the other children might say, they might pick up something, especially if there's also maybe, there, there must be some age-related toxin. Like for these 200 years, it's, you know, lies or glyphosate or electromagnetic fields or something. So then essentially the children say, now it's time for us to go through this, and they do. So in other words, these children in question in this example were maybe all exposed to the same toxin. One decides you know, or decides one goes through this uh, purging, this healthy uh, process of ridding his body of the toxin. And then his classmates, his family members that are maybe roughly the same age, somehow pick up on that frequency, that resonance, and internally sort of decide to also go through the same process. Exactly. Okay. Now, I don't know that for sure, because I don't have the research to prove it because nobody has looked. But that exactly describes everything you see. It's a harmless maturation process, which essentially leaves people better for life. And then if you stop it through some artificial means, which is usually by poisoning them so that they're actually can't go through this maturation process, you know they will be sicker for life. They will be like misfits. Because what we're really talking about is this soul and spirit of the child is using fever and, and, and expelling toxic fluid to mold the physical body into being an instrument for its use. It's as if it's like a, a, a clay modeler molding clay into a perfect uh, sculpture. Now you could say, well, you're going to get dirty when you mold clay, so don't do a sculpture. And fair enough, except then you'll never have any sculptures. And, and the problem is if you stop a child from doing that, which is essentially what a vaccine is, they become, a, what the word that I use, they become misfits. Their physical body no longer can be in a, a perfect instrument for their soul and their spirit. And we call being a misfit child, a child with ADD or ADHD or depression or OCD, or they can't breathe right, or they have skin problems. They are literally misfits because somebody stopped them from maturing. And there's, in some ways, there's no way to fix that because you've, you know, you've messed up a, a natural process which shouldn't have been messed up with. Can you reverse it? I mean, obviously there are extreme cases of autism or worse, death uh, in, in response to a vaccination. And then, you know, I, I'm 44, you know, I had vaccines as a kid. Uh, was there irreversible damage in my case. I, I feel healthy. I think I'm healthy, but who knows? I mean, right. You, you know, all I can say, there's two sides to that. One, and, and I say this about you and I say it about me and anybody else, you are probably not the person you could have been. I mean, 
it's probably not the only reason for that. But um, there's many reasons for that. Yeah, I have many reasons for that as well. But that's just that's just the fact. So you we all just live with that. But that is a a I, I believe that every person who has those kind of toxins and metals injected into their body uh, will, will never be the person they were meant to be. So uh, what's the difference? And I'm exposed to some kind of nasty toxin in the air, mold or DDT or something, and I, I'm able to purge it through fever, through swelling and, and all that, versus I'm introduced to some of these nasty metals from a vaccine. Why, why can I purge myself of this environmental toxin, but not the toxin from the vaccine? No, they're tougher. They get right into your tissues. And that's tough to get out. Heavy metals? So, yeah. I mean, you know, it also, it's worse if you're mineral deficient, because then your body will hang on to them thinking we need something with a certain amount of valence, like, you know, two plus charge. So they're a particularly difficult thing to detoxify. Understood. Okay. Partially because you know, humans have probably very little history of injecting aluminum into your body. It, you know, that's the, probably the main toxin. And interestingly, you know, aluminum is almost absorbed like zero. You don't absorb aluminum orally or even through the skin. So that's number one. Number two, because we don't absorb it, we don't have any detoxification system for it. Because why would you? You don't get it absorbed. And number three, there are no excretion pathways for aluminum. Because why would there be? You don't get it absorbed. You don't detoxify it. Why would you waste your energy figuring out how to excrete it? And number four, there is no biological process known that uses aluminum as a cofactor, unlike iron and magnesium, and aluminum, yeah. et cetera. Because we don't absorb it, we don't use it, we don't detoxify it, we don't excrete it. So I have some advice for people. If you run across something like that, don't inject it into your body because it doesn't belong there. And you may not know how to get rid of it because you've got no experience biologically with getting rid of that stuff. And, and it ends up in your brain and all the rest of it. On a, on a quick side note, am, am I okay then putting aluminum uh, deodorant, antiperspirant under my armpits if it's not absorbed into the skin? That's yeah, a good question. I mean, I still wouldn't do it yeah. because there may be some absorption, but I actually ended up when I really realized that, you know, not that I use aluminum pots anyways, but that's probably actually not as such a big deal because it doesn't really get absorbed. Right. But better safe than sorry. Yeah. I mean, I, there's no reason to use it anyway. It makes a weird taste to your food. So good point. Well, it, it seems like sort of the common thread uh, and, and all the books of yours I've read and a lot of the interviews you've given is, is this phenomenon of structured water. Um, and it seems like that is perhaps the most important thing that we can focus on and, and optimize um, to, you know, keep ourselves healthy, to minimize risk of any, anything going around, uh, you know, virus or otherwise. Um, so what not, are, what are the virus? <laughs> what do we call it? Uh, toxicity from, uh, yeah, there's no virus going around. You got to purge that from your vocabulary. My vernacular. Okay, I'll get rid of that. Uh, well, I, I know that um, you've posited that it's possibly 5G. And that uh, I think, if I'm correct, that if you look at a map uh, where 5G has been rolled out, it kind of corresponds to uh, the prevalence of this uh, 
um, COVID-19 um, prevalence. So, I mean, the main thing is, the main thing to focus on, it's, there's no evidence, there's no proof that there's any SARS-CoV-2 virus, and that should end the whole thing right there. And even if we do or don't know what else is maybe making some other people sick is at this point, not the issue. I mean, I don't think we should use uh, wireless technology anyways, but right now we have to get that bit straight and go from there. I agree. I, I've interviewed Stephanie Seneff and uh, she makes a very compelling argument that it could be glyphosate that is uh, making people sick. Uh, maybe it's 5G, but I guess my point is we do need to focus on optimizing our, our water, our structured water. And there's no doubt that uh, electromagnetic frequencies, whether it be 5G, 4G, Bluetooth, or, or whatever, uh, I imagine is, is going to affect the structure of that water. Am I right? Yes, that is absolutely correct. Things like being in the sun, grounding, walking around with your shoes off. What, what are the other sort of basic steps folks should take? Drinking clean water, drinking, drinking structured water eating good food, you know, with has enough collagen and bone broth, um, all, all the things that humans have done for millennia. And lastly, I'll ask you this. I know you talk a lot about how stress and emotion can affect your health. And uh, I, I guess this water, the structured water, love versus stress. Um, what's the mechanism there? How, how does uh, holding hands with someone you love or... The water... All these things are, elect, are fields, they're resonant energy and water is, is an energy field receiver. And so the experience of love versus the experience of hate and lies and, and fear is a completely different electromagnetic experience. And that is the basis of the structuring of the water. So if that's the way we're gonna live. We're gonna be a sick, demented culture, which is pretty much kind of where we're at. Do you feel like emotions, uh, stress, whatever it is, affect uh, our water just as much as EMFs or some strong? Yeah, everything does. I mean, we shouldn't narrow ourselves to it's just that or just this. We live in a complex world and everything, thoughts, feelings, EMFs, dogs, trees are, you know, electromagnetic emitters and receivers. And we need to be aware that this is the world we're living in. That's reality, not this other nonsense. I don't know if you've read much David R. Hawkins, and he, he has this map of consciousness, and they've done these studies um, where uh, they'll test your, uh, your strength um, when they play a certain type of music, for example, or if they hold up a GMO orange versus an organic orange, your body responds to those things. Do you think it could be things as simple as synthetic clothing and just being around things that are artificial or aren't natural and God Absolutely. knows what. Absolutely. should investigate everything in your life. If it's, if it's not here, by if it wasn't here 500 years ago, more or less, don't do it. Sage advice. Well, I think that's a good place to end, uh, Tom. I really sincerely appreciate your time. Where can I send folks uh, that want to check out more of your work? Yeah. Dr. Tom Cowan.com. And we're asking everybody to subscribe to our Subscribe Star Network, which gives you access to all kinds of stuff we're putting on and to really join a community that's really working on this. Like a lot of people that I follow, I think some of your content has been pulled down from yeah, various. Right. Yeah. So this is a, a good a good option for sure. You also have the podcast, which uh, 
at least at this point, they're not really censoring podcasts. So uh, that's another good place to, uh, to visit. All right, Tom, okay. thank, thank you, you so much. Bless you. Take good care. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Be well. Wow. Heavy stuff, huh? Well, I'm sure there's some of you that found that to be ridiculous nonsense and uh, that's cool. I totally support that and I understand. I hope that there are others of you that are at least now curious and are open to the possibility that this could be the truth. So I certainly encourage you to do your own homework. I encourage you to definitely read and listen to more Dr. Cowan. And there are a lot of similar doctors, scientists, researchers out there who subscribe to the same training of thought. So certainly uh, do your own homework, look into it, and I'm, I'm happy to provide some resources. So maybe I'll post some some links in the uh, in the show notes for today. I also wanted to just mention his take on water and how water has memory and how memories may actually be stored in the water throughout our body and not necessarily in our head or in our brain. That's another kind of far out assertion for some of you. And I think I mentioned in the podcast, I've read some Gerald Pollack and a lot of the doctors and, and researchers that I follow talk a lot about water. And Dr. Cowan talks a lot about water and its role in health and wellness and sickness. And I think what he's saying makes a lot of sense. And I'll just say this. Our next interview is going to be sort of a piggyback onto the water portion of the uh, the interview you just heard. It's a really, really fun and mind-blowing episode. And this one will have visual proof. It will have real evidence that what this person is saying is true. There's really no denying that what she says is, in fact, true. Her name is Veda Austin. Some of you may be familiar. For those of you who aren't, uh, maybe maybe don't look her up. I would rather you listen to this episode and uh, be blown away. So if you can hold on another week, definitely tune in. Listen to my interview with Veda Austin. There is also a video component to that interview, and uh, I will likely post that somewhere as well. By the way, uh, we're obviously in the infancy stages of the podcast, and for now, the best place to reach me is through Telegram. So I'm going to post a link to my Telegram channel uh, in uh, in the show notes for today. So definitely encourage you to join the channel, and it's a pretty cool platform for those of you who don't participate, and you can chat me, you can ask me questions, we can have a dialogue going, uh, so I think that'll be a lot of fun. So Please join me there. Uh, tune in next week for my interview with Veda Austin, and we'll see you then. Take care.